0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts for free. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. couple of pieces of business to get out of the way before we get into this podcast, which, by the way, is a very good one. Uh, first of all, we're doing this kind of weird thing where we have set up a hotline, the 10% Happier Hotline. I don't know if that name will stick. Anyway, it's this place you can call and leave me a message, and then we're going to do a special show where I answer your questions or respond to whatever comments you want to say. So here's the number, 646-883-8326. I'll try to tweet this out, so in case you don't feel like writing it down now or you don't have a pen or whatever. And we'll also put it in the episode description, so you'll you'll get it there. Anyway, it's a little experiment. We're going to do a special show not in the not-too-distant future where uh, I'll answer a bunch of questions or respond to comments. So uh, hit us up. Appreciate that. Um, the other uh, piece of business is um, related to that, which is we're doing the special show in conjunction with this book I'm putting out, which comes out on December 26th, kind of in time for a new year, new you. It's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and the whole thing is uh, about – basically, we did this cross-country road trip in a very uh, weird orange bus um, and tried to meet people who want to meditate but aren't meditating and figure out how we can help them. And uh, so given that a lot of people are going to be setting meditation as a New Year's resolution, we thought it was a good – Good convergence. Um, so, any again six four six eight eight three eight three two six, and uh, you can check out the book, or you can pre-order the book if you want anywhere you order your books. Okay, podcast. Bonnie St. John, really cool woman. She um, uh, had her leg partially amputated as a child and went on to uh, perform a, in, in extraordinary ways um, in athletics, specifically skiing. She also um, is incredibly smart and went to uh, some uh, some fancy schools and uh, is now a uh, – she does a lot of things. She's an author. She's uh, an inspirational speaker. She's a corporate consultant. Um, and her newest book is called Micro Resilience. She really gets that, resilience is important for all of us, not only in a macro sense, you know, recovering from traumas and setbacks, but also just micro, you know, how do you make it through the day without, you know, the last conversation dragging you down, heading into the next conversation. So she's got a lot of really interesting things to say about all of that, and, of course, she's also a meditator. So here we go, Bonnie St. John. How and why and when did you get into meditation?
1: So when I was 12 years old, my mother took us all to transcendental meditation classes, which was popular in Southern California yeah. at that time. And uh, you get a mantra and you learn. So what did you say? That's Hindu meditation?
0: Yes. Yeah, so uh, transcendental meditation is derived from Hinduism where they used uh, – Buddhists do this too, but it's much more predominant in Hindu meditation where you use a mantra, which is the word you repeat to yourself silently in your head. And just the repetition of that word can blot out – discursive thinking and actually feel really good.
1: So I was introduced to that early on. One of the most profound things, this is funny, uh, that happened to me. I was training for ski racing. I was on a glacier in Oregon in the summer training, and I sat next to somebody. I have no idea who this person was who had just read a book on uh, self-hypnosis. And I was really curious, and I said, explain to me everything you learned. And they did. And I proceeded for for the rest of my life to use my own, you know, to take what he said, turn it into something my own, and create my own practice hmm. around self hypnosis. So I never read a book on it. But How I've been old were doing you when it. that happened? That was later in life. I, I was I was probably like eight, 17, 18. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So because I was training, I went to the Olympics when I was in when I was nineteen. So I was training around that time, but. Um, it's – I relate it to meditation because really what self-hypnosis is is just like getting into a meditative state and then giving yourself a couple of suggestions. Well, so no, it,
0: tell me how that works because I don't know anything about self-hypnosis.
1: So what, what I internalized from what he said was um, imagine – close your eyes. Imagine yourself going down a set of stairs and you can count backwards like from 50 to 1 and walk down these stairs. When you get to the bottom of the stairs, there's two doors. Go in the first door. And imagine that it's a great place. I was just doing this and I was imagining my library in my house, you know, and sitting in a big leather chair with a cup of tea and my husband, you know. And so just imagine a really good place and and imagine it in vivid color and sense and sound and just you get feeling really good. And then come out of that door and go into the other door and imagine it's your inner self and you can give yourself a few suggestions. So I used this intensely for racing. Because it could get you really focused. A, a race, a ski race can be 30, 40 seconds, you know, and you have to do it, not when you choose, but when they tell you to do it, you know, and you have to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. So using that technique to get really focused before a race, you know, it's you settle your mind, you calm your mind, the visualization, the count, you know, it's, it's like having a mantra, you know, you you get yourself very relaxed. And then you give yourself a suggestion, and and I learned a lot over time doing it. Like it's important that the suggestions are positive. <laughs> you know, you don't say, "Oh, Stop I screwing up." Yeah, yeah, and I I used it for speaking as well. So many people fear speaking. I speak to you know thirty thousand people at a time. Um, so the suggestion isn't don't be nervous when you're speaking, because <laughs> what your brain is going to implant is nervousness, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would be the positive suggestion?
0: Um. Uh. Tap into your best self or something along those lines.
1: Yeah. And and if you're thinking about like skiing or speaking. Or
0: or, or, like you're going to help a lot of people.
1: Yeah. It could be 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 helpful, deliver the gift or something. So you want to before you go into the meditative state, you want to think about what is it? That is important. So with skiing, often it's being smooth. You don't want to be jerking your moves, you know, and so and whatever it is you're working on is stay ahead in the turn, you know, but you want to have a positive suggestion that you can give yourself. And by just getting into a meditative state beforehand, you're supercharging that suggestion. So it's not, it's not voodoo, you know, it's not uh, anything crazy. It's it makes sense. When you know, I'm standing at the top of a ski race, and other people are talking trash or getting distracted, it makes a lot more sense to focus your mind on, you know, get really relaxed, focus your mind on what it is I really need to do in this 30 seconds that I have to decide whether I win the medal in the world versus, you know, talking trash and getting distracted. So I learned that, you know, and I used it for speaking. I even used it when I was preparing for childbirth. It worked Mm. so well, I delivered in four hours. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I was giving myself suggestions about, let my body be part of the process, you know, let my body go with, it, not fight it, you know, but you wouldn't say not fight it, but let my body be strong in the process, something like that. It's so so it's about asking yourself to go with what you're doing. It's interesting
0: to me because I, and I will admit, and I, th- I think I've already admitted, it, but I'll say it again, I don't know much about hypnosis, and so I'm sure I'll get some education on Twitter at once this is posted, but I've always thought of hypnosis as like the opposite of meditation, where it, where you're like giving up, your own you're thinking agency of, you, over your mind. But you're
1: thinking of somebody else hypnotizing you. Yes. I'm talking about self-hypnosis. Yeah, I don't know what that so, even means. But I, but from what I just told you, all it is is meditation and a suggestion. Yeah. Actually, this is my whole problem, Dan. Well, it
0: sounds like visualization meditation.
1: Yeah. Dan, Along listen, with affirmation. Th- this is my whole problem, though, is I'm yeah. so goal-oriented. So what I just said to you was, I do goal-oriented meditation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which is like a contradiction in terms.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so the new book I have out, Micro Resilience, um, I was thinking about where are the common areas with meditation, and that's the, the whole book is very goal-oriented. It's a bunch of little things that you can do to be more resilient, and we divided them into five categories of of curated information. But one of those five categories is the reset category, and it's what you do when you get hijacked. So you can get emotionally hijacked by things that little things that happen throughout the day, and so we give you practical things to do and the the things we give you to do to respond to a hijack are the things in the book that resemble meditation so there's there's labeling um, which comes from research out of UCLA with Matt Lieberman that is saying you know when you're when you're getting that emotional hijack, if you use words to label what you're feeling fMRI brain studies show that it actually dials back that that hijack reaction. Yeah, in meditation so, we
0: call that noting, and that, that is that is a It's mindfulness, yes, yes, right? It's mindfulness. I, Knowing and I didn't, what you feel.
1: I didn't realize that until I was reading your book, you know, and then I realized, oh my gosh, so labeling is mindfulness. Yes. And I, I didn't yes. realize it. And the other thing that we do is conscious relaxation, which is – Deep belly breathing and relaxing your muscles. And, and we do that for combating a hijack because an amygdala hijack, you know, it's a, it's a threat response in your neurosystem. And so what happens is you tense up your muscles because you're ready to, you know, get a fight or flight. You tense up your muscles and your breathing gets shallow. So the, the, because rest- you're getting
0: ready to run away from a saber toothed tiger.
1: Exactly. And so the, the, the way to disengage that response is to relax your muscles and belly breathe. But again, that's like meditation, but it's but we're putting it in a goal-oriented context.
0: Let me say something about goal orientation
1: because <laughs> I can't help it. I'm goal-oriented. <laughs> no,
0: I, I'm goal-oriented too. I have a, lots of goals, um, and I, I actually I want to make I want I'm thinking out loud now, so I, I may say something I later disavow. But um, I don't think it's entirely wrong to come to, to meditation with goals. I would say there are three primary benefits for for beginning meditation. You you start to feel calmer your focus is improved and you achieve some greater degree of mindfulness, meaning the ability to see what's happening in your head without getting carried away by it. And those are those are things we should all want and aspire to. And, and I think it's okay to go into meditation with a certain amount of desire to uh, – and, and desire is traditionally categorized as a – enemy in a hindrance to proper meditation but a desire to improve these innate human qualities to cultivate these qualities as, as well as compassion not for nothing I um, guess but I those those are those are good goals to have i think it's in the meditation itself it is not fighting with what's happening in the moment that's where the the over-efforting the uh, over-efforting or the striving can get in the way so i don't actually think there's a big contradiction between your Mindset and meditation.
1: Thank you. I guess the way I would do it is put it on a spectrum. Is say sort of pure meditation is when you're just doing mindfulness to to reach the larger goals that you mentioned. You're not in the moment trying to address something. That's like sort of pure meditation. And so maybe what what I'm talking about is more applied meditation. And that could just be on a different spectrum. And it's it's good to do pure meditation as a discipline over time, right, to strengthen your focus and your clarity and calmness. But then you can also apply it to specific situations, which I don't think typical meditation people talk about as much. But it's like what I talk about in the book, micro resilience. And, and when you, you know, we talk about um, the self hypnosis technique, I was mentioning, it's, it's, it's more applied. So I, I think if you can do it pure and applied, I think that's good.
0: Let me just reframe it slightly rather than pure and applied. I would just say there are different kinds. There are thousands of kinds of meditation. Absolutely. And we don't need to get overly dogmatic about what's the best. There are just – what you described is a kind of mental – if you think of meditation – even set that word aside for a second. I, don't, I have no problem with the word, but it's, it's, it's training your mind, right? This is – most people aren't told that you can train your mind, and there are lots of ways to do it and through meditation and through these mental practices. And so there's mindfulness practice where you're just kind of sitting back and letting uh, thoughts and emotions and physical sensations come and go and you're observing them non-judgmentally. But then there's, and I know you are involved in this because you talked to me about it before uh, we started recording, loving kindness meditation where you are deliberately cultivating feelings of goodwill toward people in your world. And that's super goal-oriented in a way, although the, the twist there is, you, and this is actually a relief. Is the, is that the proper instruction for loving kindness meditation, where you are trying to develop feelings of goodwill toward people, is you don't actually have to feel a certain way. It's the intention to send the goodwill towards somebody that is what matters. So it's you know the Buddhists talk about right effort and wrong effort. So there are it is okay to have goals in a certain sense. But then there's a way in which it can devolve into striving and fighting with reality that um, can uh, only sort of twist you into knots.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I love your playful sense and and trying to get the message out to people that I I know you try to get this message out to people that – you shouldn't be so uh hard on yourself about meditation like i have to do it right you know and what you're saying is there's so many different ways to do it you yeah. can invent your own ways you yes. can make it personal Absolutely. and you're going to and and what i said to you last time too is is in coming in and thinking wow i'm going to be doing this interview about meditation i was really reflecting on my life and i've tried a lot of different things and and for me meditation even blurs into prayer yeah and but what i noticed when i came in last time was I felt like I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm probably worse at meditation now than I was 10 years ago. And so I was just reflecting, you know, on my whole journey with meditation. And I think a big part of it is these lovely little phones that we have, the (laughs) iPhone. And I get so addicted to it. And I'm constantly doing email. And I'm constantly playing my little words with friends with my Aunt Donna and, you know, Um, and so I think I'm so much more distracted than I was 10 years ago. And so for somebody, you know, I've been on a journey all my life doing meditation. It was an interesting kind of reaction for me. So one of the things that's made a difference. So I I wanted to come in and tell you, since the last time I saw you, I am better at meditation than I was the last (laughs) time I saw you. I don't know if I'm as good as I was 10 years ago, um, but for me, what's been helping is to put it in the phone. If the phone's distracting me and drawing my attention, can I put some meditation in my phone? Yeah. And so I've, I have your app, which I think is wonderful. Thank you. And I, I highly recommend it. The conversations about meditation that answer some of your questions, you know, can help keep you focused and give you that sense of forgiveness that you're going to mess up in meditation. And there are predictable ways we mess up and, you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. So I loved that. Meditation and com- is messing up. Yeah, it is. You're not
0: doing it wrong. You're doing it right when you mess
1: up, and you got and quote unquote mess up. Moving through that is what it is. Yeah. Yes. So, um, what's his name? Joel.
0: Uh, Joseph Goldstein. Joseph Goldstein. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yes. So, uh, those conversations between you and him on the app, I think, are really helpful. So it's not just breathe. You know, you you actually get to hear more.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the benefit that we like to do, and there are lots of great apps out there, and I know you're you're, you're yeah, we can talk a lot about of them. Some, yeah. I love I love. um I guess I'm supposed to view them as competition, but um, and this is why I'm such a terrible businessman. I actually think there are people out there doing amazing things. But what we do that I like, though, is that we get these people like Joseph Goldstein who have been doing it for 50 years, and we let you hear from them. Unfortunately, you have to listen to me ask the questions. No, but, that's, you know, that's fun, a, too. That's, I mean, to me, that's the value add because while – while as you, you were absolutely correct when you said before that uh, you know we should have a playful attitude, we should be allowed to um, – to improvise a little bit and make the practice our own. It also is helpful to hear from people who've been doing this for decades and have been down every cul-de-sac, every blind alley in the mind possible and can say, "Uh, well, let me tell you from my experience, that's probably ill-advised or that, oh no, that's, you're heading in the right direction there, et cetera, yeah. et cetera.
1: Yeah, or or like me, who has been doing it for decades and to say, I'm bad at it now. I'm worse at it now than yeah. I was 10 years ago, you know, and, and I hope that's freeing for other people to, sure. to hear sure. that too. But I like Buddhify, I've yeah. been using that. Sure. And um, there's one called Loving Kindness Meditation that I found in the App Store. Um, and and so, yeah, so playing with a bunch of different apps and it, it's there's different things and it's been helpful to create to have the distraction bring me to meditation instead of the distraction yeah. taking me away from it.
0: That's really cool. I love the idea of co-opting the engine of our distraction, the phone, and using it as a way to actually tune into you know being alive, et cetera, et cetera. Because we become – a friend of mine used this term that we're like these giant parade floats. Like we're all head. you know, We're all just stuck in our head all the time in part because we're, we're glued into this phone all the time and we're not connected to the fact that we're like these living – Beings This is starting to sound a little woo woo, but it's true that w- that we have these bodies, we exist on planet earth and but we're all just stuck in our head with words with friends and uh, how many likes do we have on the latest Instagram post, et cetera, et cetera, and I love the fact that we can use the phone to cut the strings of the marionette
1: yes, absolutely, so yeah, so I've been doing that more. And uh, because we are fanatics, some of these apps give you the opportunity to track how much you've mm-hmm. been doing. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, but still, I think it's it's really good. And so I do use meditation in a goal-oriented way. But this is allowing me to do more what I would call pure meditation or, or meditation that's just uh, the overall discipline.
0: Don't beat yourself about using it in a goal-oriented way. I think that's fine, just as long as you don't take it too far. And it doesn't sound to me – I'm not an expert, but it doesn't sound to me like you're doing that. It sounds to me like yeah. you're – you're, well, I wasn't beating
1: myself up.
0: Okay, good, good, good. good.
1: <laughs> I was just distinguishing who I am.
0: <laughs> can you? Can you? Can, speaking of who you are, what we've neglected to do thus far in this conversation is just. Can you give the, your backstory because it's so awesome? Can you just tell that a little bit? It's
1: a crazy story. So I'm, uh, I'm the first African American to win Olympic medals in Winter Olympics, and because I lost my leg when I was five years old. Uh, I competed in the Paralympics, actually before it was called the Paralympics. And, what was it called? Uh, it was called the World Winter Games for the Disabled under the auspices of the International Olympic Committee. That's an so unwieldy the, name. <laughs> yeah. So they came up with a new name. Trivia. So I have on my Olympic medals the Olympic rings, which now they don't because they have the Paralympic logo. Um, and I have this logo that they came up with you know, for this thing. And it, they took the Olympic rings and they broke them. And so they're like these broken rings. I know. It's like a really bad idea. It was a really bad idea that came and went. So uh, so there's history uh, as they were figuring out what they were going to do. But anyway, so I was in the Paralympics. But the the crazier part of the story is I grew up in San Diego. uh, And my family did not have a lot of money. So a lot of people say, wow, you skied on one leg at 70 miles an hour. I'm like, yeah, but it's really hard to ski with no money. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I grew up in San Diego. Yeah, so I was – so a one-legged black girl from San Diego who ends up becoming an international ski racer.
0: Pretty cool. Pretty so, cool. So, But in addition to that – how, how did you lose your leg?
1: It was a birth defect. The growth was stunted. So it, my legs looked normal when I was born, but, but the right leg didn't grow uh, as much as it should have. So if they hadn't done anything, my foot would probably be sticking out where my knee is. Mm. But as it is – so they amputated my foot, gave me the artificial leg. And as you know, I can walk around pretty fine. Yeah. I wear the leg without – since we're on, on audio, I can tell people I wear the leg without a cosmetic. So it looks like the Terminator. It has a lot of metal in it. And that's a lot of fun because I'm going through airports and things and, you know, kids will look at it and I'll say, see, I'm a, I'm a transformer. <laughs> uh, but it starts interesting conversations. The Dalai Lama. I met the Dalai Lama and he looked at my leg. And he was like, wow, you know, that's so neat. And he gave me a big hug. And it's nice to have it be literally transparent, to be uh, – out there with it. And when you put the cosmetic on it, it never, the cosmetic doesn't look like real skin. You know, it's an approximation. And it, people look at it like, what is that? You know, this way people know what it is. You know, when you have the metal, it's, it is what it is. It makes it a lot easier to get through airport security, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to travel with you. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans the weather is getting warmer time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees How, how did you take this experience um, as somebody with a disability and somebody with um, uh, an athletic, an incredible athletic um, uh, accomplishment and turn it into what you've become now?
1: Well, I, I also was a nerd. Actually, when I was growing up, uh, I could I wasn't on school teams. you know, I wasn't I wasn't an athlete growing up. I, w- I used to read books on the playground because I couldn't do Hopscotch and Double Dutch. So I always wanted to write books. I was a real nerd. I went to Harvard and then I was a Rhodes Scholar and went to Oxford. Um, I worked for IBM, which taught me a lot about computers, which I loved and sales, uh, and then worked in the White House on the economic team. Uh, in the Clinton administration, and then started my own business. so did a lot of motivational speaking, but then ultimately started doing a lot more leadership consulting with clients. and uh, I run a women's leadership program. So uh, so I do a lot of a lot of uh, diversity work. I actually just got asked to be on the Diversity Advisory board for Uber. Nice. So that was a bit of a...
0: Did you have to think twice about that? I I
1: did because, you know, there's a lot of serious things that have been going on there and they know that and they want to address those problems. But I, you know, I wanted to know, are they serious? You know, if they were inviting me in to be window dressing, you know, I don't want to do that. So um, I do believe they're serious and they have a real burning platform, which helps companies make change when you have a real burning platform. And uh, so I'm going to the first meeting And uh, we'll see how it goes. But if I can be part of something that's a really positive change, I certainly would like to.
0: Um, So tell me about the new book. Uh, We talked about it a little bit. But um, how does it fit into your overall message and mission?
1: So the book is Micro Resilience. And it's my seventh book, I think. Uh, I just
0: pound these things out.
1: <laughs> well, no, I've been doing this for many years. But um, I've written about uh, – you, you wrote it with your husband. I wrote it with my husband, yes. Thank you for saying that. Alan Haynes. Let's give him credit Who too. Well, I met because
0: he came to the last taping. Yeah. The, the, the long lost first The long-lost yes, first yes, tape. Like the basement tapes.
1: So, um, yeah, so it's micro-resilience. But it builds on a lot of the things I've done. I've I've written about joy. I've written about – Um, prayer. Uh, I've written about women's leadership with my daughter. And I think all along people are always saying, you know, how do I have more resilience? How do I, how do my kids have more resilience? How do my team at work have more resilience? And so this is a very practical book that we looked at a lot of things that I used, a lot of research that I learned, and then added, scoured the literature and curated it into these five areas. And it's called micro resilience because it's small things that you can do each day. We, we tend to think of resilience as big things, as, you know, how do I recover from cancer or, or a hurricane or a lost job? but But there's also little resilience. How do I recover from a bad meeting that yeah. I was in or, you know, a, a conflict the with a coworker. So this is, I the, was just
0: in a bad meeting. So. <laughs>
1: Micro resilience. Okay. So, so what do I do? So, um, I'm, I'm well, doing
0: a lot of apologizing. That's my first step, but what else should I that do? That sounds
1: good. So there's five different areas. There's things that, that, um, can help your brain be more resilient. Uh, that we get mental overwhelm, our brains get exhausted. We talked about the reset area, which is responding to mental high, uh, emotional hijacks. How can we be less emotionally hijacked? Um, the The third one is spiraling to the positive, that we – as human beings, we're designed to spiral quickly to the negative. So how do we strengthen our muscles to go positive? And then um, there's a couple of little things we do for metabolism, just keeping your metabolism more even because when your metabolism is flying around, it's – you know, you get hangry. Yeah. Uh, you, so it's harder to do the other things. And then the final one, the fifth one, gets a little more, more complicated, but it's on purpose. So looking at how do you clarify your purpose, but not just that, a lot of people talk about clarifying your purpose, but then you put it on a shelf and you go to work, you know. So we talk about how do you then connect your purpose Mm. to your day-to-day work. So at three in the afternoon when you're tired and frustrated, how does purpose help you? Um so that's micro resilience is is the little things you can do throughout the day. So which of those appeals to you after they your all, bad meeting? They all
0: do. Can I can we just go on can we say more about all of them? I'm serious. They're okay. really, really interesting. Okay. Can you just take them one by one and say more?
1: So mental overwhelm, um, it's you know, I think of it as our, our prefrontal cortex is the most advanced part of our brain. And it's a but it's a late addition in terms of evolution. It's something that was added late. And we I would say we're so overusing it. That it was designed, you know, when primitive man occasionally used the prefrontal cortex and it allows you to envision things, to plan, to restrain your impulses, you know, is what it does. But now we're using it for everything. Like you said, we live in our brains and there's so much information coming at us compared to even 50 years ago. We're just putting so much demand on it. So one of the insights is... If we understood the limitations of our advanced brain more and respected them more, we'd get more use out of it. Like when it's exhausted and overwhelmed, it's not working very well. So stop trying to use it for everything. So it's simple tips like offloading more things from your brain. And that can be, you know, writing down to-do lists, but it's also checklists. So things you do repeatedly instead of just trying to remember everything you do, have more crib sheets and even um, less decision making. Okay. So I tend to wear black tops, black skirts and black shoes and just change the colors of my jackets, you know, and it's, it's, so it's less complexity. It's
0: it's like creating a habit structure that lowers the cognitive load.
1: Yes. And the more you can do that, the more you're going to seem smarter, Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so some of the tips revolve around that. There's also I – mean, Steve
0: an, Jobs did that, right? I mean in terms of uh, his wardrobe.
1: And Einstein, there's the big joke that he didn't even know his own phone number because he's like, why would I waste space in my brain for that? Huh. Um, there's another insight that I love about exercise too for the brain is that we tend to think of exercise as, you know, I'm going to work out for an hour four times a week and I was going to make me healthy. And that's macro. That's what we would call macro resilience. But for micro-resilience, it's about the hour-by-hour, day-by-day things that you're doing. And the research shows that a little bit of exercise can make you smarter for hours afterwards. So that if you do 20 minutes, there's one study about 20 minutes of dancing or 10 minutes of walking, and you your memory works better, you do make better insights, better decisions, you generate more ideas. Um, so if you know that. It changes the way you behave. This has been a huge behavioral change for me, is in the past, you would say, I have a big project today. Either I have to finish a report or I have to deliver a speech. And you say, you know what? I had my workout yesterday, and I'll do another one tomorrow. I'm in good shape. But today, i got to focus on this work I have to do. But if you understand that insight about micro-resilience, you would say, oh, I really want to just do a little bit of exercise this morning because it's going to make me smarter, Mm -hmm. and I can do better at that thing I'm trying to do. I like that. And so it's different. The macro resilience exercise looks like maybe getting really sweaty and working with a trainer. You know, it's this perfect idea of exercise. But the micro resilience exercise you do to help you be more effective today might look simple.
0: I love that um, I, I worked out this morning for 30 minutes and then meditated for 30 minutes and promptly got up and did something stupid that led to the bad meeting that I uh, that I just so referenced. So didn't it didn't help you to help be smarter. No, well, just think no. how
1: much worse it would yes. have been. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I,
0: I was just going there. Okay. So what, what else was on the list?
1: So we talked a little bit about reset because I, I said conscious relaxation um, helps you pull back from the amygdala hijack, right? Yep. Because we're tensing up. And so you pull back. And then, um, labeling is mm-hmm. another one. And another one in that category is, um, smells. There's certain smells that also cut through an amygdala hijack and exactly. sounds. So I've heard that from Dr. Boroshenko. Um, so the third one is spiraling to the positive. And again, you know, we are conditioned as primitive the, the genes we inherited are to spiral to the negative. If anything is possibly negative, we get really a strong reaction. But with positive things, so I always say, like, if, if a primitive man saw the bushes rustle, you know, he, he might think, oh, somebody's coming to attack or the saber toothed tiger. But if primitive man sees berries, he doesn't go, berries, you know. <laughs> we don't respond strongly to the positive. So, training ourselves to do that. So, one of the simple things that, that we talk about in the book is a joy kit, is having a first aid kit for your attitude. So we have first aid kit for a cut or a bruise, but you know bad things like you had your bad meeting today. So you could have a first aid kit for your attitude at your desk. It could be a drawer or a box or – and you put things in it that help you turn your attitude back to the positive. Um, so Like in, a
0: picture of my kid.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so I was going to say in mine, I have a note from my mother who passed away 10 years ago that says cherish yourself. Should that old fashioned penmanship? You know, some people put uh, you know sand from their last beach vacation, or I know somebody who has a um, a digital recording of their dog barking. <laughs> but but one of the things is our desks often are like uh, a joy kit, right? Is so we have pictures, we have all these positive things we put on our desk, but they disappear. You know, you stop seeing them mm-hmm. after a while. They don't have that emotional impact. So part of the idea of a joy kit is things that you put away that you can pull out. And a lot of people do them on their phones. Mm-hmm. So if you're traveling a lot, I know one woman who was Jet Set executive who, um, who had it in her phone and she would look at it when she's in a taxi. And she was having a lot of problems getting negative ratings as a leader. And she's the joy kit was one of the things she did that really shifted her positivity. So helped her shift more into the positive. And she had tried so many different things. She'd had different coaches, but it, instead of, you know, the, the coaches told her smile more, don't cross your arms so much. You know, instead of external changes, it helped create an internal shift to the positive that helped her to be a better leader. the The side effect though was she told me. So I, I was following some people who were using these techniques from Micro Resilience. And she said uh, she started dating. It was the first time in four years she'd been dating because, again, she made this internal shift that was more positive energy, and she started dating. So
0: Nice. I like that.
1: So we've done three out of the five. So the, the fourth one is um, refresh techniques. And it, this is really simple. It's metabolism. But I am not a nutritionist. You know, I am not an exercise consultant. So it's just saying um, stay hydrated and keep your blood sugar more even. Um, so make sure you're you're eating food on a regular basis. So it's not just about how many calories you're eating. You know, it's are you keeping your, your blood sugar even? And the funny part about this is, you know, people say drink six or seven glasses of water a day. Um, and and you may be good at that. But when you're under pressure, again, when you're yeah, trying you're to get that debt, that's when you forget. And so the micro resilience insight is when you're thinking about how to be more resilient during the day and how to perform at your best, it's. Are you drinking water when you're under pressure? And there's a lot of studies about that too. Kids that drink water before a test do better. Um, it's it's very. Our brain can't really store glucose or or water or hydration, and so your your brain can get dehydrated even before you feel thirsty. So um, so it's it's a lot about performance. Yep. Again again, yep. I'm the Olympic skier. You know, this is all about day to day performance, hour by hour performance. I, I have
0: no beef with that. I I want that. You know, I'm I'm. Com- incredibly ambitious. I have two shows on ABC. I got this podcast. I got a startup company. I've read books. I'm all I you don't need to. So no, I'm not. I'm not
1: not apologizing. I'm I I think it's a good marriage. Some people say micro resilience and they look at it. and they go, Oh, it's wellness. And I'm like, it's it's a marriage kind of of a wellness and high performance. Yes, Yes. because it is so goal oriented. It's not saying, oh, just relax and drink water. You know, it's drink water when you're under pressure. Yeah. Um, And that's a key. It's a key thing that we forget to do.
0: And then the fifth area was um, purpose. purpose. It's about yeah. purpose. So and- I I actually think that's incredibly important. And you said before how if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you're tired and cranky or whatever and you, you and you just had a fight or whatever, how do you reconnect to your purpose? How do you reconnect to your purpose?
1: So one example is, t- is what we call touchstone, is having a touchstone that you're conscious of being able to use throughout the day. A friend of mine, um, Sylvia Burwell, who uh, – is was uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services and is now uh, the president of American University, when she was at the Gates Foundation, she had a picture of an African girl who was 10 years old that she put in the conference room wall, on the wall. And when you when I think about the Gates Foundation, I think, how could you lose sight of purpose? You know, you have billions of dollars you're spending to fix all the world's worst problems. You know, every day that must be like a purpose – romp, right? (laughs) Um, But the reality is, you know, there's a lot of red tape, there's egos, there's warlords, there's all these things getting in the way of actually being able to solve a health crisis in Africa or something. And so, you you know, you might be getting in these conversations, should we solve 20% of the problem for 80% of the people or 80% of the problem for 20% of the people? Or should we make this compromise? So she put the picture there in the conference room so that when her team is sitting down having one of these discussions, she, she called the, the girl the boss. She would say, what would the boss think? And it's sort of like, if you had to explain your idea to a 10-year-old girl in Africa, would you be embarrassed? Maybe you should rethink it. So it's a touchstone to pull everybody back to a mm. sense of purpose and reminding them of what they're there for.
0: Organizationally, this strikes me as very difficult because, you know, um, sometimes the organization will come up with its purpose and then put it on everybody's ID cards or paint it on the wall. But the, then you it becomes invisible, right? So how do you think, make it visible? I, I like that, what she did,
1: yeah, because that was her thing for her team. Yeah, I think when you have like the overall corporate purpose, that's that is a challenge, and I think it's good they they do at least try to put it on your ID card, but um, but I think what you do for your team, and you can also do touchstone as an individual, is what's your individual touchstone? Alan, my husband, used to do a lot of the marketing for movies for Disney, and uh, he was owner so, of ABC News. He was so uh, passionate about Disney. When he was, he grew up in Pennsylvania. And when he was 10 years old, his father drove him out to California to go to Disneyland. And he was so excited. He'd been watching the wonderful world of Disney on TV, you know, and to actually be there on Main Street, he looked around and he said, This is what I want to do. You know, I want to do entertainment. And so years later, he finds himself working with Disney. But the reality is there's egos, there's celebrities, there's stars, there's narcissists. You know, it's not all just about entertainment, right? So his touchstone is he would go down to Disney and sit on a bench on Main Street and watch the families laughing and smiling and remind himself, this is why what I did what I do. So it's it's having some touchstone and it can be a picture, it could be a phrase that you that you put on your desk, having something that you can use to pull you back at three in the afternoon when you're tired. What If you had to write a phrase about your purpose, what would pull you back?
0: Um, we'll get to that in a second. I just, just was going to say, what you're talking about reminded me of a previous guest we had in the show whose book I happen to be rereading. Um, his name is Thubten Jinpa, which is a Tibetan name. He is the Dalai Lama's English translator. So wow. every time that Dalai Lama speaks anywhere, you see this guy in a nice business suit next to him. He's not a monk. Um, uh, that's the Jinpa. And he was on the show. Actually, you can, let's go, listeners can go back and find it. Um, he wrote a book. I wouldn't have called the book this because I'm not a huge fan of, of the word heart, but he called it uh, A Fearless Heart, which I, I highly recommend. It. It's a really great book. He worked with Stanford University to develop a loving-kindness or compassion meditation training course over eight weeks, sort of a systematized protocol that they could then teach people and then do scientific research on. So um, he talks about intention setting. So in the morning, uh, saying to yourself, you know, um, this is my intention, this is my purpose, this is what I want to do today, and then at the end of the day kind of revisiting it. Um, and I, I think the old version of me would rebel against something as touchy feely as that, but I've found now that I'm old and soft um, that that it's actually quite useful. Uh, and in the the Buddhist phrase, uh, would be you know setting the impossible goal of you know may all beings be free from suffering, which is impossible, but a nice aspiration and uh, not a bad thing to think about, like. Is everything you're doing in some way useful to other living beings? That would be a purpose.
1: That would be your purpose? Yeah. yeah. Say it again.
0: Am I, am I, is the overall thrust of my life in the direction of alleviating human and animal suffering? Am I doing a good job on that? Am I at least making a contribution toward that?
1: That's interesting. So as a touchstone, as you come out of this bad meeting and you are frustrated with your day, how does that help you with that?
0: I actually think I was right um, in the overall thrust of what I was suggesting. I think I went about it the wrong way, so I and created a little suffering, and so I that's why I reverted to the apology.
1: So you were you feel like I did that wrong, so I'm going to apologize. Yes.
0: But I think I think the the overall move that I was suggesting was the right one.
1: So, but does reminding yourself of purpose help you to feel better coming out of that, or help you get back on track? It does
0: now. I would never have thought to do that. That's why I like your advice. You know, in a bad moment, sort of uh, step back and say, all right, what is the purpose again? What am I – what's my job on the planet? Um, uh, and is, Check in with that. Yeah, yeah. is what I'm is, – is what I just did or what I'm about to do aligned with that? And that can k- kind of get your head straight to give you a sense of, okay, well, that thing yeah. just happened. I can't change it. But I can touch base with my touchstone. What's my overall job on the planet? And can inform my next steps.
1: And so when you do that, what I hear is that you feel like you did the right thing, like apologizing is on track with your purpose. Yes. But it just feels good to go, yeah, oh, that's good. Okay, now I can move forward. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So great. Are you going to ask me mine? Yeah, what is yours? (laughs) I wasn't, go ahead, because I'm so
0: in my own self-centered head space. But thank you for popping me out of that.
1: Uh, So definitely um, inspiring people. And it's inspiring people to sort of see what's possible in life, and to um, to see how to be the best version of themselves. And I think as the, the one-legged African American ski racer from San Diego, you know, my that's part of you know you can you can see that that's the assignment <laughs> that I got. Yes. is um, my life is such a symbol of what is possible that you wouldn't have expected. And so helping other people to see what that means in their own life is, is how can you go beyond the, the boundaries of what you thought you could do.
0: So, OK, so in your traveling, you just talked earlier about how, how it's stressful to travel and your flight's delayed or maybe you get – there's a sharp word exchanged with somebody at the counter who's telling you uh, actually you can't fly until tomorrow and there's no hotel available or whatever. How do you operationalize the idea of reconnecting with your touchstone in those moments? or do you
1: You know what I had that the other day I had that on Friday I was supposed to fly from uh, DC to Newark and I was flying there to go to my daughter's boarding school for parents weekend and I was really looking forward to seeing my husband and my daughter and everything and the flight wasn't going to go and they said they they after you know a while of time going by they finally announced that the repair people weren't even going to come for 3 hours to start working on the plane and there were no other flights. And by this time, all the trains from D.C. to Newark were gone. And so I rented a car and I drove and I got there. I was tired and so I was a little cranky. But what I, what I said at the time, and as I'm you know, i talking to my office, I'm talking to my husband, I'm talking to the airline, is that when you travel as much as I do, you just do the next thing. Like, okay, this plane's not going. There's no drama about it. Why, why have drama about that? That's just wasted emotion. And it is upsetting. You're like, okay. But just, okay, what's next? Is it the train? Mm, looks like all the trains are going to be gone. Most people are going over to the train. I think I'm going to let that go. Besides, there's a lot of transitions. If I took the train, I'd have to take the taxi to the train. and the, Anyway, you see what I mean. Is You just figure out what's next and if you can be at peace. not, I can't always do that. I'm not perfect. But I just find it's an easier way to live is to be peaceful through those changes and as I was driving, I used the time to hands-free call, but uh, t- catch up with some different people in my office and in my life and just move the energy somewhere else, I guess, I, is the answer.
0: That all makes perfect sense to me. Strip out the drama. Do the next thing. How does that fit into the five areas of resilience that we discussed? Or does it?
1: Well, as you said, staying on purpose is that you – if this is the time I have, is not in a plane but in a car. How do I stay on purpose? Um, if you do get upset, and sometimes I do, you know, can you do some, some deep breathing or something to calm just the physiological reaction you're having to, to a threat? Um, yeah. Do Trying to think of the brain yeah. part? I mean, there's different yeah. ways. So, yeah, so you can, you can definitely use it all.
0: Um, you're awesome.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for your purpose and what you're doing because you're really making a big difference for a lot of people who are contributing a lot on the planet to help them contribute better.
0: Okay, so that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review. And if you want to suggest topics or guests for the show, just hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Special thanks to Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the team here at ABC who uh, helped make this thing possible. And remember, we're now on TuneIn. You can hear our new episodes there five days early on Fridays through the end of this year. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week.